Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. States across the country are starting to think about when they're gonna open their economies and what level of testing or social distancing or hospital surge capacity they might need to make that move. But how exactly the economy will be revived, that remains a huge question. And what will have shifted while it was dormant? So it could be quite transformative and, uh, and it, it could surprise us, and you know, positively as well as negatively. David Otter is Ford Professor of Economics at MIT and co-chair of the MIT Work of the Future Task Force. So I'm, I'm like everyone else, uh, awed, scared, uh, and trying to make sense of it all. Otter has spent decades looking at how work is changing, the jobs that are going to go overseas next, the parts of the economy that are going to be automated, the salaries that will rise, and the salaries that will fall. He says, if you want to know what happens next for us, one place you don't want to look is in the rearview mirror. We can't really be super confident in the projections that, you know, uh, you know that, that we typically use. And, you know, the, the, for example, the Congressional Budget Office has, you know, terrific models that they use to forecast the unemployment rate, the, the return to, uh, you know, the, to growth, the output gap between potential and actual, and how that affects the rate of reemployment. But those models are based on past history, and that history may not be a good guide. We'll talk about what's next who may be most hurt, and industries that could actually benefit. But first, a look at the present moment and the emotional and logistical trouble we find ourselves in. I I didn't think my job, the company, or any of it was in peril. It's just like, oh, shut down for a month and everything's fine. Everyone will go back. But the fact that it might not survive is, it's starting to sink in. Kate, who didn't want us to use her real name because she was concerned about future job prospects, worked in the lab sequencing DNA up until a few weeks ago. I was reading in the New York Times about people losing their jobs in restaurants and bars, and I'm like, this is terrible. And then my my manager is talking about how she's in a group chat and her friends are going, oh, I've been laid off. And then another person going, I've been laid off too. But it still hadn't hit me. Kate's lab analyzes samples for places that don't have their own labs, like schools, some hospitals. And to her, the jobs seem reliable, seem steady. But as more places shut down, there were fewer samples to collect. And Kate was laid off. She's living with her mom, who doesn't think they should go out at all, even for groceries. So how's Kate coping? What's her mental state like? Not good. Um, the first couple of days, it was pretty awesome. It was like, woo, don't have to go to work. I can sleep longer because I'm really bad. I, I like to sleep late, even though I have a typical nine to five job. So I'll wake up groggy every single morning, go, why did I stay up until one in the morning? And now I'm like, oh, I can sleep until 10. But then it just starts wearing on you. I, I don't, I miss people. I, I miss going outside. I miss having all these things that I didn't think were essential. But now I'm just like, oh my gosh, I would, I would do anything to be able to do that now, but I can't. Kate is applying for new jobs. And at least in David Otter's view, the economy that she was once part of has a chance of making a real comeback. Many of the great, you know, uh, depressions and recessions, you know, in, in the U.S. and in, in prior history are the result of asset financial price bubbles. And those are the ones that have histor- historically taken the most time to recover from. 
uh, because they lead to huge misallocation. It's, uh, and so you have to, you know, have to repair a lot of stuff, and that's not this. So it's possible, right? We, were, there was no, we weren't fundamentally economically unhealthy to begin with. Uh, we, uh, we shouldn't be fundamentally economically unhealthy when this is over. So in some ways, it could be more of a deep V recession, the type that we used to see, uh, prior to the 1970s than the kind that we've seen since, which where we have, you know, fast, uh, fast down, slow up. Still, he says, there is serious damage being done to the economy, and you can't just ignore it. On April 14th, the International Monetary Fund said they expect this to be the worst recession in nearly a century and to take the biggest toll on us since the Great Depression. I remember getting off work on Monday and being like, I don't have a job anymore. Um, because, yeah, it's like, you know, they they were very clear about not picking and choosing, like, okay, this department is totally safe. And they were like, it's going to come from everywhere. But at the same time, 50% is such a large number. Logan worked at a tech startup. The company had just gotten $400 million in funding in February, but that didn't save his job. I mean, I think I was a bit naive, you know, when I started hearing about it. I mean, I understood, I think, early on how serious it was from a health perspective. But when it came to, like, the economy and people's jobs and everything, I kind of thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm in tech, and tech always has jobs, and you can work from home, and it's like I'm, I'm isolated from all this, and it, and it really doesn't matter. I mean, it, it can affect pretty much everybody, um, and it will, I think, for the near future, for sure. Both Logan and Kate have now filed for unemployment, along with millions of others, and millions more are going to join them in the weeks to come. Congress, of course, passed a bill to help people who need unemployment insurance, or UI. Initially, in drafting the bill, the thinking was, well, different people make different amounts of money, so let's give everyone UI that is some fixed percentage of their salary. So, for example, Congress might decide to peg it at 70%, and then everyone would get 70% of what they normally made. But that, David Otter says, was where the government ran into trouble. Indexing people's checks to their salaries was too complicated for government offices to handle. The state UI offices are running very old computer systems, many of them using, you know, 50-year-old COBOL code. Most of the COBOL... Wow. Yeah, I mean... 50-year-old code. How about that? Okay. The last time there was great demand for COBOL programmers was in Y2K, right? In 1999, uh, you couldn't couldn't get enough work. They they couldn't... There was was unlimited (laughs) work for people who were COBOL programmers. Well, it's 21 years later... And uh, many of those programmers have uh, succumbed to what we would call natural attrition. Which is a reflection of how ill-prepared we may be for what's happening and what's to come. There's a big picture here, which we're going to explore, a story of the industries that will rise and fall and change our lives. Right now, though, the real challenge is logistical. It's going to be tough to get cash out to restaurant workers and hotel clerks and to people like Kate and Logan. Just like it was tough, too tough really, to draft the bill that would help them. And that's why they moved to a straight lump sum increase of $600 a week for everyone who would receive UI benefits. That's a very large amount, actually. $600 a week is $30,000 a year uh, if you were getting it for 50 weeks. And for many mm-hmm. workers, uh, individuals, that, that replacement rate will be above 100%. Uh, on average, okay. it won't be. Uh, but if you were, let's say, you were working at a, you know, a ten dollar an hour job, uh, which would be above minimum wage in some states and below minimum wage in others, that's twenty thousand dollars a year. 
So your replacement rate would effectively be 150%. Um, so, uh, but it was an extraordinary move in many ways to uh, create, a, you know, to, to make the system much more generous and much more inclusive. And I think that's something that we're all going to want to think about after this crisis is over, which is, well, if these people are, you know, if more workers should be involved and covered by unemployment insurance when we have a deep crisis, shouldn't they be part of that system on a day-to-day -day basis? And shouldn't they, in fact, be paying into it uh, as well as receiving ben benefits from it? So that's extraordinary. Simultaneously, uh, Congress created a very large fund, although not sufficiently large, but a very large fund of about $450 billion to make loans and grants to businesses. So the loans effectively are low interest loans, 100% guaranteed by the government with uh, deferred payments and the, the interest rate is capped at like 4%, which is quite low and it could be lower uh, uh, depending on how conditions evolve. But in addition, there's another provision of the bill that if you keep 80% of your workers on staff rather than laying them off, then those loans can be entirely forgiven. And so the government effectively okay. uh, is paying you to keep your workers or paying your workers through you. And you might say, well, why do we want to pay the workers through the business rather than just pay them through the UI system? Well, there's a longstanding belief that the connections between workers and firms are valuable, uh, that they keep workers engaged, that they keep firms, you know, keep the expertise of the workers within, in the firms within that firm. And so severing those links might be costly. And if you can instead sort of keep them on life support, that might be even less disruptive than having the workers, you know, go onto the UI system and then look for new work uh, when this is over. I was just going to say, I've actually heard people complain that Europe... Um maintain stronger linkages yep. in in the bills that they passed they maintain stronger linkages between the employer and the employee um, and instead of putting so many people on unemployment they said i guess just keep paying your workers that's we'll correct. pay you to do that is that better is that a better idea yeah the u.s is using is using both models simultaneously right one where you pay the businesses uh, to keep the workers the other where you pay the workers a lot if they are if they, if they are laid off and you know if you had to choose one or the other in general i would choose and i think many economists would choose uh, the one where you pay businesses to keep workers on uh, because we think those connections are valuable um, the uh, uh, the u.s kind of went for both simultaneously there's an upside and a downside well the upside is that more people will be covered by the UI system than would have been covered as employee as employees because many of the people who lost income are not employees, right? They're self-employed, they're contractors, they're gig workers who would not be mm -hmm. in the UI system. So this provides coverage to them that they wouldn't get through that other mechanism. Um, the downside uh, is that actually the unemployed the, the effective replacement rate for UI is now so high for some, you know, at you know six hundred dollars a month on top of what you already would have received. Uh, that employers are some employers are realizing, well, it's kind of a win-win for my workers. If I lay them off, they'll actually get a bit a paycheck boost temporarily, and I won't be responsible huh. uh, for their for their pay. And so uh, they view it as the rational thing to do. Um, and you know, to the degree that we think you know it would have been valuable for those workers to remain engaged with that firm, that's a little bit of an unfortunate side effect of the policy. Again, ironically, coming back to the fact that. We did not have the technology. States did not have the technology to do this in a more nimble way. And, and that reflects, and this is also true, by the way, on this loan program to businesses. The Small Business Administration is a, not a large agency. <laughs> Fittingly, it's small. Uh, and it's being asked to administer a, a, 
a very, very large uh, disbursement program, loan program, that's complicated, and they can't do it that fast. And this reflects, you know, to some larger degree, the kind of, you know, slow atrophy, atrophy of the competence of the U.S. government and state governments over the last four decades of kind of neglect you know, kind of deliberate neglect and, you know, uh, taxpayer starvation of the functions of government. Uh, the U.S. government is small relative to the economy as compared to every other advanced economy. Uh, it's grown by much less. Uh, and uh, state governments are also small uh, comparatively. And so the end net result is we don't have the administrative capacity, the technological capacity, uh, the nimbleness or the expertise that we would have had in these same circumstances, you know, if the year were 1980 rather than 2020. Which brings me to the with this question of competence. Do you trust that um, we will be able to get checks out to people before there are, you know, mass evictions, before people run out of money for food, before, you know, before the bad things happen that the checks are, are aimed to prevent happening? No, I mean, they, they won't. It won't happen as fast as it ideally would or could, <laughs> or, okay. or would. I mean, I think they will go out and, you know, loans will be made, pay, checks will be received, but no, there will be a lot of waiting. And that waiting like will be costly. Like how much waiting? You know, I, there I don't, I don't have, you know, specific okay. expertise. My understanding is that some of these IRS, if you have to, if you don't already have a bank account on file with the IRS, you might not see an actual check for months. If you, if you already are a regular taxpayer and you've been uh, using uh, electronically to pay or receive tax uh, reimbursements, refunds, uh, then that might happen much faster. Uh, the Small Business Administration is struggling to to make loans quickly enough. They're working with private sector banks. They are unhappy with the rate at which these banks are themselves administering the loan programs. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, you know, unfortunate that, you know, it's, it's really an emergency. And yet the capacity to sort of do these things uh, overnight is, is, uh, is quite, quite limited. And, you know, again, the IRS, another example, they're also running on, you know, decades old computer systems. They have not successfully upgraded. The, the Congress has not appropriated the money. Uh, prior attempts have failed. And so they're incredibly limited uh, in what they can do quickly. It, it just seems like such a problem when you've got people who are making twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars $25,000 a year. In, in, that, in that situation, you are almost inevitably going to be living paycheck to paycheck in terms of like paying the rent, paying the mortgage. And, and you're like, well, we'll get that check out to you in a few months. Like that, that, that just doesn't seem workable to me to, to for a lot of people. Sure. And, you know, again, state UI agencies are trying to, you know, to do this, to administer these payments, but they themselves are overwhelmed. <laughs> They're not, right. they were not built uh, to have, you know, a situation where, uh, you, you know, we've had 16 million unemployment insurance claims uh, over the last three weeks as uh, on the date that we're speaking now. Uh, there'll be more <laughs> by the time this program airs, I'm certain. And, uh, and so, yeah, they're not, they're not set up for that. And, um, so yeah, it's going to, it's going to go slowly. And even, and even then it's not clear, uh, you know, how, you know, even if you can meet short term debts, uh, you're, you still have, uh, longer term problems. Like, let's say for example, you're, you know, you own a business and your uh, landlord says, okay, don't, you know, you're, you're renting. Many, many owners don't physically own the properties in which they are located. They just, you know, they rent. And the, the, the owner of the property says, okay, uh, you can defer this month's rent. You don't have to pay it this month. You can, you know, sorry, you can, you can, you know, pay it two months from now, three months from now. Well, that month, that money still eventually has to be paid and there won't have been business income during that period. 
So right. it's still quite challenging to figure out how you make that work. Uh, it's well, and then add on to that, what if you have to open up and let fewer people into your establishment because there's more social distancing? So your ability to make money, maybe it's there, but maybe it's not at 100% capacity as it would have been, you know, back in January, let's say. Oh, yeah. No, no. A lot of businesses that, you know, have in-person activity are going to have slower throughput as a consequence. I mean, not all of them are doing terribly, right? We know, uh, you know, Walmart's doing well. Grocers are generally doing well. Uh, apparently Home Depot is, is mobbed. <laughs> uh, people, uh, you know, people have time on their hands. This is, this is the moment right. to do those home, home repair projects. But yeah, man, if you're a restaurant, you might be able to stay open. Although I don't think in Massachusetts say you're allowed to be open. You're not allowed to be open at present, but even if you were, you'd have to have many fewer customers. Uh, so yes, it's going to, and, and this is a concern going forward as well, that, how much will the overhang of, you know, ongoing disease threat uh, cause people to scale back, uh, you know, things they would have done, the, you know, going out to, you know, going out for food, going to shows, uh, doing, you know, tr you know, getting on airplanes, going on uh, vacation. Uh, and if that's the case, then this will be a slower recovery than it would otherwise have been. Right. If, if we if the whole, if we are there's kind of the, uh, you know, an, a cloud overall activity, some residual sense of risk, uh, then clearly we won't go back as fast as we would if 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 it was if we realized suddenly that the, the, the virus risk had passed or that we were all you know immune now or there was a vaccine that was instantaneously available, none of which will occur. Can you talk about um, are there parts of the economy that you think may actually get stronger because of what's going on now? Uh, things that will get stronger. So clearly e-commerce will be stronger. <laughs> um, I think, and that, that's not a bold prediction, <laughs> uh, I, I think the other things that will change, uh, one important one, at least from, the, from where I sit as an academic, is uh, the change in educational modality. Uh, and yeah. we're all getting a crash course in how to do online education and how to do a lot of things online. And I think that will, that will be disruptive, but in the long run beneficial, uh, because for one thing, our educational models are you know, based on in-person, if it's a college, they're based primarily on residential education, and that's extremely expensive. Uh, and it's expensive not only because you know, people have to go to a different place and live there and pay room and board and all that stuff rather than live at home, but it also means that you know, all these interactions happen at low scale. You, know, you have right. uh, very few right. students per faculty member. So for example, you know, in hundreds of classrooms every fall, economics instructors open up you know, Greg Mancuse's Principle of Economics and you know, do their version of that book for undergraduates. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's like, it's like you know, in, you know, a thousand theaters, you know, a thousand mediocre versions of Hamlet are all being performed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, why not just, you know, have one great performance by the, you know, uh, the, you know, British Shakespeare Society and we can all watch it on video. Um, right, right. So, so it's not, so I do think this is going to shake up the, uh, the education model. And we're also going to learn, by the way, about what's valuable about it. We're going to, there's some things we're going to miss terribly and say, wow, yeah. glad uh, now we see why we were paying for all that. <laughs> right, right, uh, right. But so I, th so I think it's going to change that. Uh, I, I, I think it's also, um, it's going to change, uh, I think it'll have a big effect on, permanently on business travel. Uh, I think the, the number of uh, people uh, crossing continents for a, num for a 90 minute meeting, at least relative to the number of 90 minute meetings that occur, is going to drop uh, because people mm. are going to recognize that actually, 
being there in person now has reasonably close substitutes. Uh, and, uh, and so that's, that's beneficial. In fact, it may actually even reduce traffic in Cambridge because <laughs> more people will zoom in to more things. Hmm. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking to David Otter. He's a professor of economics at MIT. Let's take a quick break here. We will come back to talk about what jobs, what industries may benefit when America opens back up for business and what might also disappear. We're also interested in how you think the economy is going to change because of the coronavirus pandemic. Are there things that you see happening that maybe are not being reported? They're a little bit under the radar. Um, you can let us know by email, innovationhub at wgbh.org. You can also tweet at us. We're at iHubRadio. And I am at Kara, K-A-R-A, E, Miller. From WGBH Radio and PRX, this is Innovation Hub. Back in just a minute. After the 2016 election, author Brian Alexander went back to Ohio to see how the political winds had shifted. What he found was a state heavily, and in many cases adversely, affected by automation. It's interesting that they have bought into this idea that whatever technologists in Silicon Valley says is going to happen will, in fact, happen. And it's going to mean bad things for them. They don't know what exactly bad things, but it's going to mean bad things. Alexander visited an auto parts plant just south of Toledo that had about half the number of employees it used to have. And one of the reasons is because of robots. And the existing employees certainly see that. And they see that if they could be replaced, they will be replaced. And so they never know when that's going to happen. Automation had not only changed jobs, it had changed lives, communities, voting patterns. People felt adrift and dispensable, which in part underscored their support for a candidate who was totally outside the system and just wanted to blow it all up. And we may be living in a moment when robots and computers are again about to radically change our lives. One thing that will happen is this will be something of an, of an automation forcing event. David Otter is Ford Professor of Economics at MIT, and he's the co-chair of the MIT Work of the Future Task Force. He has spent decades studying how automation and offshoring changes jobs and lives, and often opens up a divide between the haves and the have-nots. And Otter says, it may be about to happen again in a big way. Because even going forward, we may want more robots cleaning rooms and uh, disinfecting things rather than have paying people to do the, such things. It turns out automation does not happen little by little. We don't get like a few more robots every year. In fact, studies show that automation zooms ahead when we have a recession. Why? Well, listen to Otter talk about what's likely to happen during the downturn we're living through now. Employers are going to learn quickly things that they could do without workers that they thought they needed workers to do. And once things go back to normal, employers are not going to unlearn that lesson. They are going to say, huh, I thought I needed people, but actually I have a machine that can do this, or maybe this didn't need to be done, or maybe there's a way to do this that you know, obviates the need for such and such activity. Uh, maybe I can, maybe I do not need wait people. Uh, maybe I can just have, you know, ordering kiosks and people can pick stuff up themselves and, you know, all kinds of things. 
Otter has been thinking about how this pandemic and the recession that comes with it will change America economically. Automation is one important trend that we're going to see, but it's not the only one. It will also interact with another, I think, you know, very, very likely consequence of uh, the pandemic, which is that small businesses will be much more likely to close up shop permanently than large businesses. Large businesses have access, they have deeper pockets, they have more cash on hand, they have much better access to credit markets, and so they are very likely to survive this unless their business models were just non-viable to begin with. And hence, when this is over, unfortunately, I think we will have we will be more in a chain store world, more in a world where mm. big businesses have command an even larger share of economic activity, and small businesses, uh, many of them, will have been weeded out, and that you know has real costs because it decreases the variety of things uh, available to consumers. It also decreases you know some of the great entrepreneurship that goes on, and also, and this is a kind of a subtle. Uh, uh, consequence, but large firms, bigger firms are more capital intensive and less labor intensive. So if we move to a world where more of the goods and services are provided by large firms, that will tend to decrease the share of national income going directly uh, into wages and increase the share going into uh, profits and and returns to uh, shareholders and owners. So there's a lot there. Um, Let me ask you a question about automation then for a minute. I hadn't realized before I started reading about it um, that automation does not happen in this kind of linear way, which is what I was uh, saying before. It basically jumps up when times are bad, when there's a recession. When you think about the industries that are ripe for more automation, for fewer people, what are those industries? Sure. Let me let me first, can I just first sort of uh, yeah. uh, kind of amplify the point you made? Sure. So. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of on- automation that's ongoing. You know, all the time people are buying new equipment, new machines. Those, you know, newer generations tend to be more autonomous, <laughs> uh, do more things than older generations. However, uh, that tends to happen discontinuously in recessions. Uh, one reason being that, let's say there's a bunch of, of, you know, ways of doing something and some are kind of up and coming and some are kind of on the way out, but they can sort of coexist uh, for a while, you know, because uh, they're both viable. And then uh, when the recession occurs, it will tend to cull the weaker business models, the ones that were kind of a legacy. And uh, in general, if the newer business models are ones that are more dependent on automation, which will surely be true because automation, the potential of automation is improving so rapidly, uh, then that means when we come out of this, even if no firm changes what it's doing, the set of surviving firms will be those uh, that have you know, made or you know, are using more of the new technology. Um, and, and why doesn't it happen you know, more incrementally than that? Well, often using new technology is, uh, means retooling the way you work. It's not just you know, unplug the old one, plug in the new one. Uh, when you know, factories adopt robotics, they often have to shut down and totally re-engineer assembly lines because it's not that robots have the same capacities as workers. They don't. Uh, they can do some things workers do faster and better, and there are other things that workers do readily that robots can't do at all. And so you have mm. to re-engineer the allocation of tasks so that workers are doing what they do and machines are doing what they do, and somehow those integrate together successfully. Um, so uh, it's it's absolutely the case that that uh, this kind of culling process will tend to push us in the direction of more of more more automation. In addition, as okay. as we were saying a minute ago, I also think there's a lot of kind of what you know forced learning, 
right? A lot of discovery, right? You know, necessity is the mother of invention. Firms will discover things that they didn't think they could do uh, with, you know, with machines and computers that, oh, I guess they can if there are not workers available. Um, so uh, both of those forces push us in the direction of, of a acceleration of the process of automation that was already underway. So, I mean, you know, what are areas that are ripe for automation? More of it, you know, so I think one area will be in retail, where we will see, you know, faster acceptance of robots that clean floors, that restock shelves, that, you know, greet and direct customers to things they're looking for. Uh, like when we go into the store, we're going to see more robots, like actually yeah, see them. This is not sure. on the assembly line. Okay, okay. No, that's right. No, ro robots are already very pervasive on assembly lines at large, at large manufacturing firms, not as smaller and medium-sized ones. And, and they're widely, widely accepted. Uh, and they're, you know, pervasive in heavy industry, especially in, you know, auto manufacturing, but even in food uh, uh, packaging and so on. Um, so no, it's going to be is the, the the real trend now is robots coming out of factories and into into civilian life, <laughs> right? Okay. And okay. that could be, you know, robots cleaning warehouses or cleaning retail stores. It could be robots that are doing inventory, you know, checking inventory, checking inventory on, you know, grocery store shelves, very time intensive, right? You have to go look and measure the skew of everything there. Well, now those, you know, products have radio frequency ID chips that broadcast what they are. Robots can just, you know, stroll on by and collect that data. <laughs> uh, okay. Or they can scan those data using lasers and so on. Uh, so uh, we'll see more of that. Uh, we'll see uh, more robots in a kind of a customer service role in terms of directing people to what they're looking for, uh, potentially facilitating checkout whether you're, uh, you're ever having to go to a cashier. Um, uh, so we'll also, I imagine, see uh, more robotics in uh, hotels and hospitality doing, again, the cleaning, which I think people are now going to perceive as even more important, uh, more than just a convenience, a, a health measure. Uh, I expect, you know, uh, in hospitals, and it's already occurring, we'll see uh, more robotic uh, delivery of, you know, of documents, of, of, uh, of materials, of instruments, of supplies, you know, how scurrying through uh, buildings and stores. <laughs> well, so that list that you've sketched out so far, um, it largely seems to focus on people in service industries, um, people maybe in factories losing their jobs to some degree. Um, are you saying like there's just not going to be nearly as much loss of uh, white collar work? I, I think there will be attrition of white collar workers, but I don't think that is really actually being, you know, or early erosion of some of their roles. I don't actually think that is being forced by the crisis because many of those white collar workers can actually do what they're doing from home. But it's still the case okay. that many of the things that they are doing can eventually be done by uh, software and artificial intelligence, not robotics per se. Most white collar workers aren't actually doing anything physically interesting. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but, you know, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, picking stocks and investing or in terms of, uh, you know, managing inventory or certain personnel decisions or some, you know, uh, many discretionary decisions. So, uh, can increasingly be done by, uh, artificial intelligence, by software that, uh, that doesn't just follow kind of, you know, fully specified rules and procedures, but also uses a degree of judgment, uh, a degree of, uh, you know, putting together hard and soft data to make decisions. Um, that used to be the domain exclusively of people. So, you know, software could kind of get you to the water's edge. It could, you know, say, look, here are the inputs. Here's the, you know, here's the, here's the quantities. Here's the prices. Here's the forecast. Now you make a decision. <laughs> uh, but now 
uh, software can get into the water and uh, make that decision for you. It can say, well, here's, you know, I, here's the quantities, here's the prices, here's the projection, and uh, here's data in the news that, you know, talks about what people are doing. Uh, here's information on weather and patterns. Uh, here's trends in Asia. Uh, let's look at all these things and, you know, we'll make a, make a decision about, you know, should we buy or not buy or how much should we order, uh, et cetera. And you might say, oh, well, our machines, you know, are they good at that kind of decision making? And the answer is, well, probably not that good, but people aren't either, right? We're, we're all actually quite imperfect when it comes to dealing with a, a mixture of hard and soft data. So it may be sufficient uh, for machines to do some of those managerial discretionary tasks that have been exclusively the domain of people. And I think that was already happening, was and is going to happen. Um, and the reason I don't think it's as tightly linked to the COVID pandemic is that many of those jobs are being done successfully remotely at present. Uh, so okay. it, hasn't, it hasn't caused employers to uh, realize that they need machine replacements for workers in those positions uh, any more than they previously were aware of that. But they might ultimately realize that, that that guy in middle management who decides where we open our next door, like what state, like a computer program could do that pretty well too. They might ultimately realize it, but it's not like this is hurrying them along. That's correct. And, and I, okay. many firms are already, you know, well aware of this and they're looking for okay. opportunities to, you know, downsize, uh, you know, you know, agents, managers, programmers, uh, logistics people, all kinds of decision making uh, that uh, that, you know, previously had to be done by people. You know, Amazon, Amazon's a good example. You know, Amazon, uh, they're always a good example, of course, <laughs> but, you know, they, st they stock millions and millions of products. And some of them, you know, they drop ship from other locations. Some are sold by other vendors, but many of them are kept in their warehouses. Well, how much should they keep of what? Uh, so, you know, for, for a long time, it's one of the early field, you know, questions answered by operations research is how much should you keep of something in inventory? But that well-understood algorithm doesn't tell you which things you should buy, <laughs> right? Which products you should actually stock. It only tells you, well, if I'm stocking this, how much should I keep and when should I reorder? Well, Amazon doesn't have any people any longer who make those decisions about how much of what to buy and whether or not to stock something. That's all done by software. Uh, and that's something that was not feasible, uh, you know, 15 years ago because it required too much judgment. But now the capability of software to kind of mix, you know, hard data and, you know, well-understood, you know, codified rules and procedures with soft data and a sense of, set of complex inputs that give a kind of a probabilistic decision, uh, that's feasible and uh, firms are taking advantage of it and will be doing so uh, going forward. And, and that's, a, that's a, real, it's a real difference um, from earlier ways of automation. Uh, it's quite important, arguably more important than robotics because robotics is, you know, slower moving, expensive, clunky. Um, it just may not be as made, you know, it may not be have, have been made as extra salient now <laughs> as it was uh, two months ago because so many of those jobs actually continue to be executed from homes. Hmm. Okay, let's take a brief pause here. We're going to come back with some last projections of how this pandemic that we're living through is going to realign the economy. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking to David Otter, Ford Professor of Economics at MIT. He's co-chair of the MIT Work of the Future Task Force. You're listening to Innovation Hub from WGBH Radio and PRX. We're online at innovationhub.org. We'll be right back.
I've been talking with David Otter. He's a professor of economics at MIT, where he's co-chair of the MIT Work of the Future Task Force. And his focus, not surprisingly, is on how jobs are going to change, what industries will rise and fall, whose jobs are going to be offshored, and whose will become even more indispensable. We've been talking about how the coronavirus pandemic is going to alter the economy by automating it more, by discouraging business travel in a lot of cases, by pushing us towards actually more of a chain store world. And David, I wonder if in our last few minutes here, you can give us an overall look at sort of how things look on the road ahead. Um, But it seems to me, just synthesizing everything you said, like, and we talked a little bit about this before the break, blue collar workers are really poised to suffer substantially more from what's happening than it sounds like white collar workers. I think that's right. I think through three mechanisms. Uh, one is uh, that you know firms will discover new ways of doing things with you know machines or without labor that they felt they needed uh, to do with labor. Uh, two, uh, the recession will tend to weed out the small firms. Uh, unfortunately, uh, they're less well capitalized uh, and uh, they have less access to credit. And will shift the balance of uh, more of the balance of economic activity towards larger firms, as it has as has been going on, by the way, for a couple of decades. And that will again reduce demand or reduce labor share of income because large firms are more capital intensive, less labor intensive. Finally, uh, I think it will change consumer and business behavior in a way that reduces some demand for many in-person services. I think that will be most acute in kind of business travel. And, you know, business travel is kind of, you know, the tail that wags the dog of a lot of other uh, uh, discretionary and tourism travel because business travelers pay full fare. They they fly business class uh, mm. tickets. They pay full fare at hotels uh, on weeknights. They go out to expensive restaurants without looking in advance at what the dishes cost. Yeah, right. uh, and so a lot of us are basically, you know, we're flying cargo class, <laughs> uh, you know, in these, uh, you know, luxury hotels and aircraft that are mostly being subsidized by deep pocketed businesses. And I think they'll do less of that. And I think people will demand to do less of it because they will be concerned about the exposure. Uh, so they one will have learned it's not as necessary, and two will have learned it's it's riskier at least for a while. And so I think that will have a contractionary effect for all kinds of hospitality services. So you know, uh, luxury air travel, but also hotels, also restaurants, also transportation services. Um, so yeah, I I think that we won't go back to where we were on that, and that will most directly affect a lot of in-person services that are already low uh, paid. Can I, but can I offer a brighter side of this as well? Yes, yes, right, please. Thank you. I know as an economist, I'm supposed to try to stay dismal, but, um, (laughs) you know, so this is again, something that the MIT Work for the Future Task Force thinks about a lot and has focused on in its writing, which is that uh, these, these, you know, the, the, the quality of jobs and the set of opportunities and also the set of benefits and security that people are offered is not, uh, is not fundamentally uh, exclusively determined by the market. Uh, a lot of it has to do with social institutions that uh, affect bargaining power, that affect uh, workers' uh, rights that, or and also you know their, their protections under law, but also the social safety net. And you know even before 
this crisis, we had a problem, an employment problem. It wasn't an employment problem about the quantity of jobs. It was an employment problem about the quality of jobs, that even as productivity has risen by more than 75% uh, since the mid-1970s, median incomes, median wages, excuse me, have risen by 10 or 11%. And that's not, there, there's no economic law that said it had to work out that way. And in most other countries, it has not worked out that way. Uh, so the U.S. has been uh, uniquely, uh, you know, hard-hearted in uh, allowing a lot of economic growth with a very unequal distribution of gains such that many workers without college educations had employment but had very little economic security. And that was true that was true during the boom, and it's true even more obvious now. And we have an opportunity to re-examine that. Right? One thing that people will hopefully come out of this crisis acutely aware of is that many low-paid workers perform essential services. Uh, many of those would be care services, right? So mm -hmm. registered nurses are paid uh, relatively well, but workers who are home health aides or certified nursing nurse aides, for example, the people taking care of the elderly, in uh, you know nursing facilities and uh, retirement homes, they're directly exposed to the virus. They are not well paid. Uh, people in grocery stores, uh, people doing delivery, uh, many of the, even people doing you know Instacart, uh, they people are people picking up trash. Like how well does a city function if nobody for a month picks up the trash? Exactly, not very well. So a lot of those people are taking great risks, and uh, they're not uh, they're not well remunerated. And we have an opportunity to reexamine whether that's the deal we want to offer them, because it is not, uh, it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, and I, I don't, you know, I, I, we can improve and, you know, many places have attempted to improve the quality of jobs through somewhat higher minimum wages, through providing maternity leave, uh, paid vacation and sick leave, and even some degree of security. For example, you might, wouldn't it be nice to work at a job where you knew a week in advance what hours you'd be working? And that you had some sense that you would actually, you know, if you expected to work 35 hours a week, you would get 35 hours. Uh, you wouldn't be told, oh, no, it's only 20 this week or go home. We don't need you for this shift and we're not paying you. Um, and and so I think that we have an opportunity, especially the way we have you know, brought all these people into the social safety net, into the unemployment insurance system who were not previously covered to say, well, maybe we weren't striking the right balance initially. Maybe there's a lesson about, you know, our kind of. Uh, you know, A, who is essential, uh, who is really, you know, doing important work uh, at great risk without much security, and B, who is included, who is really part of us uh, in our social insurance system. And, and uh, I, I'm hoping, although you, it's very hard to predict with any certainty, <laughs> that, that that awareness will affect social policy, will affect the way we structure work. I mean, social security came out of the Great Depression, like out of a time when, you know, people did become acutely aware of how people were actually living and how close to the bone things were. Can you imagine, you know, some kind of real serious increase in the social safety net coming out of this moment? Or do you feel like that uh, it's pie in the sky? I mean, you know, a time of FDR, that was a different time. Uh I, I can imagine it coming out. I can imagine us saying, let's have a, an a unemployment insurance system that covers gig workers, that covers uh, contract workers. Let's have a health insurance system that just doesn't work through employers, that everybody has a you know, universal, universal expectation of being covered you know, through some mechanism. Uh, I can imagine that. I can also imagine that not happening. <laughs> uh, and you know, the, the fact is that we are 
politically extremely polarized on these topics. And as much as uh, I might think those are exactly the way to go, there are many people who feel just as strongly that that's a, a terrible mistake, an incursion of the state into the private sector realm, uh, a creation of social dependency, and all kinds of things that I do not agree with, but I understand people hold those views. And, uh, and as a consequence, uh, it's not clear how we will quickly get to consensus uh, on this view. You know, Obamacare, for example, is actually very popular right now, but our current uh, administration is trying as hard as it can to dismantle it. Uh, so uh, it's we uh, it's not clear what forces us over uh, that forces the, uh, the, even the majority support to create legislative action to enact those uh, political preferences. I don't mean to be too cynical. Again, I think is a real opportunity, is a moment. But we should remember that after the financial crisis, you know, we could have, you could easily have predicted that, well, now we will, you know, people will say, oh, my God, you know, this is our country is, you know, kind of socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor, right? You know, bankers are bailed out, but homeowners are not. Yes. Uh, we've got to fix that. And there was a movement towards that. That was Occupy Wall Street. But but that did not occur. That ultimately was not successful. And in many ways, we've been moving backwards from even the steps we took since then. So it's easy to imagine why after this, you know, in this pandemic, why people would say we need to rebalance. And I think that's correct. But whether we get there uh, is very uncertain. A final question, which is sort of even bigger than what we've been talking about. Um, this is obviously not just something that happened to America, the, the, the coronavirus pandemic. It, it's Europe. It's Asia. It's, it's Africa. It's, it's South America. It's everywhere. Um, I wonder, when you think about, obviously, the globalization has been such a story uh, for the last couple of decades and how it's changed jobs in America. Do you think that this uh, kind of shakes up the world order to some degree? And if it does, I wonder what you see. Like, does China become even more powerful? I mean, like, just, I don't know what you see, but well, I'm interested. I mean, I, let me answer on, on two different levels. One is uh, it, it makes uh, companies and countries acutely aware of their dependencies, uh, for, you know, for goods and services, uh, you know, China's, you know, for, was the first country disrupted that affected supply chains. We have become aware of our own lack of capacity to quickly produce, you know, ventilators, masks, to even survey and understand what capacity we had and repurpose it. Um, so uh, one thing is I think firms will uh, want to, and governments, will want to reevaluate, you know, what are their capacities? What do they need to have at home? And how vulnerable are they to disruptions uh, emanating from elsewhere? So that is a force that will certainly work against the sort of hyper-globalization, very complex uh, supply chains that have been built up successfully over many decades. So I think you could see uh, a, a real kind of anti-globalization, not in from a reactionary political point of view, but purely from a, you know, a prudence point of view mm -hmm. uh, that firms and governments would want to uh, engage in. Um, I think... Also, uh, this is a, you know, you could, have you could imagine another scenario in which America had taken a real leadership role in uh, fighting this pandemic in, in a period in which it would have had the best science, uh, the, uh, the, great, the fastest ability to identify, to, uh, to, um, to test, uh, to uh, treat, and uh, to uh, instruct on expert you know, responses, what would be the best response. And the U.S. has not taken that role. Not clear it even had the capacity anymore. And that, but had that occurred, it would have been, 
unifying, just as the Marshall Plan was unifying after the Second World War, or even the degree to which the U.S. Uh, was, you know, people were unified in the support of the U.S. after 9-11. So we have not stepped up to that plate. Uh, right now we're busy finding ways to, uh, you know, blame China for this virus. And so uh, I think that an opportunity for sort of, you know, cohesion among countries in solving what is a worldwide challenge uh, has, right. you know, has, has been missed. And I think that's unfortunate. David Otter, thank you so much for taking the time. I, I really appreciate it at this in- incredibly difficult and like seminal moment. Thanks so much. And since we recorded this interview, unemployment filings have risen to 22 million. That's in just the last four weeks. We want to hear from you on this, as I mentioned earlier in the show. Are there changes that you think are coming in the economy that maybe most people haven't picked up on yet? What do you see ahead? You can contact us by going to our website, innovationhub.org, and clicking on the About tab. You can also email us, innovationhub at wgbh.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. Until next time, from PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.